Barukata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvotah V'tzivanu, La Asok B'divrei Torah, Veha Arevna Adonai, Eloheinu Et Divrei Torateka, Befinu Ufiamka, Beit Yisrael, Venie Anachnu, Veta Etainu Veta Etae, Amka Beit Yisrael, Kulanu Yodea Shemeka Venom De Torateka Lishma, Baruch Ata Adonai, Ham Lamed Torah Leamo Yisrael, Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Menakaolam, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Hamim, Venatan Lanu Et Torato, Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten Ha Torah. Amen. May it be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me. And may I not stumble in a matter of Torah and cause my colleagues to rejoice over me. And may I not say regarding something which is to may that it is to whore. And now regard something which is to whore that it is to may. And may my colleagues not stumble in a matter of Torah and I rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. Apt words. Can you write Welcome to the rumination study for Parsha Re'e. Amen. And with this Parsha, is just before Rosh Hodesh Elul. So with that, the king is in the field. Let's do this. Time now, draw close, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is an understatement. <laughs> this is really that time. You can uh, rectify your whole year in these coming 52 days. Yes, that's right, 52, because 40 of them is Rosh Hodesh Elul to Yom Kippur. But if you go all the way to Shemini Adzeret, Simchat Torah, that brings your grand total to 52 days. So, 52 is the gematria of Ben. So, unto us a child is born. Uh, let's take advantage of it. Amen. Ani dodi ve dodi li. Amen. So with that, rumination 44. Why is the most memorable Bible quote, judge not, lest you be judged? And one of the least memorable, appoint judges. Man. I love how this is quoting practically uh, Parsha Shoftim, which is next week's door portion. <laughs> it's kind of like a prelude to it. Yep. You know, it's um, but I understand its connection to this week's Parsha because this week's Parsha is the first time that Moshe sets before the B'nai Yisrael the blessing and the curse. If 
you will hear and do what Hashem has commanded you. Mm. Quick note on Bahatorium after your point. Um, yeah, pretty much from this Parsha on, we see Moshe repeating this phrase. I set before you this day a blessing if you obey and a curse if you don't. And the other noble thing about this Parsha, we find within it the standards for the Nevi'im. Mm. Right, the, Divine the, 13. Yes. But, however, this begins at the end of chapter 12 in the Tanakh. Nice. In your English Bibles, it would start with 13, but in the Tanakh, no, it begins at the end of chapter 12. And Parsha Shoktin's actually going to talk about it a little bit with the sorcery type stuff. That uh, yeah, De Devarim 13 and 18 are the two chapters of concern. Uh, 18, because it falls in Shoftim, right after the chapter regarding the kings, and they're supposed to keep a copy of the Torah with them. And the, and the word Mishnah is used in Devarim 17. Mm. And also wow. Moshe's statement that you are to do everything that they tell you to do. Which brings us back to this rumination. Right. Appoint <laughs> judges. This mm. is talking about accountability, yes. But the crux of the matter is Yeshua is dealing with hypocrisy. Those who would try to enforce their own personal standard of righteousness. Mm. This can rear its ugly head at any time. In any one of us. Th this is what we have to fight against all the time. Our own personal desires, ambitions, whatever they may be. Because all this stuff ultimately just simply separates you from the totality of the shell. Right. Hence why Musar is so important. Mm -hmm. Your willingness to endure discipline, as the writer of Hebrews indicates. If you don't endure it, then you are a momzer. Wow. That's a heavy word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> illegitimate. Do you want to be spiritually illegitimate? Wow. So mm. something to seriously take personal inventory. You know, it's what am I striving for, you know? in my own personal standard of righteousness, what, what do I think that I'm trying to prevent? I can't thwart the will of Hashem. It's impossible. You can't. Because his word does not return void. It accomplishes every single thing that he has set it out to do. Everything. You can either stand in unity with the will of Hashem, as Mashiach did, or 
you're in opposition, which is idolatry. Yeah. There is no sitting on the fence. Which is also something else that this rumination uh, brings out, if, we care, if we're careful enough to examine it. Because we have a lot of people who are on the fence on this subject. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have uh, this quick uh, insight I thought was interesting because the opening uh, quote here from the rumination talks about appointing for ourselves. So I went to Bahaturam on a Barsha Shok team. So this is the volume chapter. 16 and verse 18. So Bahaturim is commenting on Titain Lecha, you shall appoint for yourself, which is interesting because the word Titain is related to Natan, which is to give. And so it says, you shall appoint for yourself, but not for Gentiles. So I thought that was pretty hefty because that's like escalating quickly. But it says the Talmud and well, first of all, Tankuma 5, Midrash Tankuma 5. The Talmud cites a Bereta, just as the Israelites have been commanded to set up courts of law in each and every province and each and every city. So have the Noahides, literally children of Noah, a generic term for non-Jews. Uh, they've been commanded to set up courts of law in each and every province and in each and every city. Sanhedrin 56b. The Bahatorim comments explains that Israel is not responsible for the establishment of the Noahide courts. So that's interesting. So the non-Jews are left to fend for themselves, so to speak, when it comes to setting up their own governing systems so that's one aspect here but he goes on to say he relates his words to Yaakov and his statutes and his judgments to Israel to Elim 147 Psalm 147 verse 19 says the gematria of this phrase his statutes and his judgments is 575 which is equal to that of the fine points of his judgments. So all of that to say that uh, when we talk about appointing for ourselves these judges, uh, the Torah gives us a very exhaustive, um, you think like the, uh, the Constitution and all of that with all the amendments and things that are in there, you think that's crazy. The Torah is like super like detailed, finely detailed, even beyond what we could possibly conceive of in the human mind. And this is something that is special and particular to Israel, as opposed to any other nation in the world. So when we talk about the fact of appointing for ourselves uh, judges, like that's a very, very big statement to really uh, take in because there's a lot that goes to that that really has to do with all of the fine points of the psyche and the uh, the way that man was created 
because the Torah is specific to all the aspects and dimensions of a human being. So on all those levels is the, uh, the process of judgment and uh, things like that. So anyway, little Baha Torum drop to speak about the depth and the layers that are involved in judges. Wow, nice. Yeah, I just got out the Ramban on Devarim 13, okay. verse 2. If there should stand up in your midst <coughs> a prophet or a dreamer of a dream, <coughs> why does the Torah call this person who encourages the worship of alien gods a prophet when clearly mm -hmm. he is an imposter? Rabban gives two explanations, the first of which is scripture calls him a prophet in conformity with his own false description of himself. That, oh my goodness, because how many people call themselves prophets today? <laughs> I, will, I fully expected this. I fully expected this. I am not surprised by this statement at all, considering Damn. how much time I have spent and studying the, the Nevi. Wow. Because the question I would ask is, what is the mark of a true Nevi? Ooh. Come on. What he says does not happen. Why? Because Hashem would rather bring blessing than judgment. Nice. If you return to me, says Hashem, then I will return to you. Where's it saying Yashiahu chapter one? The two readings during Bain Hamitzarim. Let us reason together, says Hashem. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as wool. Though they be as crimson, they'll be as white as snow. And if you are willing and obedient, then you will dwell in the land. Wow. But if not, the sword. See, that's the thing. People don't want to be held to a standard, even if it's Hashem's. That's heavy. <laughs> and this, see, this is the thing. When you really think about the Ramban statement here, it's there's a there's a volume of content here, of insight. The the Nevi'im always calls you to do teshuva, come back to the Torah. This is what Yochanan the Immerser did when he came on the scene. This is what our Master did. The same thing. In the desert, in the wilderness, Bamidbar, in the wilderness, they did this. Their message was consistent. Our master's message of Teshuva was consistent with the Torah. In that Shuva la Torah, return. That's what repent means. It means to return to the way of Hashem. Not your own way, but his way. Mm. Anything else is idolatry. 
you're walking in your own way. This is clearly what the Ramban is saying here. You know, for he says, God spoke with me while I was awake. And I am his prophet sent to you to command that you do this. In parentheses, worship false gods. But it is also possible that scripture is alluding to what is in some sense true. For in the souls of some people, there is a prophetic power through which they know the future. <laughs> the person himself does not know from where this power comes, comes to him. What? This person himself does not know from where this power in brackets comes to him. You Dude. see these kind of people today. Mm -hmm. They don't I'm acknowledge it's the Shaul, Romans chapter one. They worship the creation rather than the creator, blessed be he. Man. Romans chapter one, divine 13, two. Wow, what a connection. <laughs> but look at this. Look what the Ramban says next. Man, this, this should grab you. But he secludes himself and a spirit enters him, including inducing him to say, this is what will happen in the future regarding such and such a matter. When we both know that the Torah was given in the presence of an entire nation in public. Goodness. And what do you see? Uh, all these religions, they get started in a basement. By one single man. Okay, I'm going to pick on somebody here. Uh, the Mormons, unfortunately. Okay. Joseph Smith. Shots fired. <laughs> that is not a shot across the broadside. That's targeting shields and weapons. <laughs> yeah, targeting system hit the mark. No innocent bystanders. I, this next point I'm going to make, I cannot stress it enough because it needs to be repeated over and over again. No revelation supersedes that of the revelation from Sinai. Ooh, mm. that's that right there. I mean, you got to first of all repeat that, and then we need to like just say let that marinate because sometimes or a lot of times, I mean, we have a whole system of uh worship that's generated off of neglecting Sinai. I don't know how that happened, but 2000 years. Um, Sinai, like that whole experience, like the comments here says nothing surpasses that. Nothing transcends it. Nothing supersedes it. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who have feelings, <laughs> my old self included, about, well, what about the, the revelation of Golgotha? You know, like the garden too and it's just kind of like nope sinai because <laughs> if you go back to sinai you're gonna have to have some real come to hashem moments 
So anyway, if you could please repeat <laughs> and kind of go on because that is okay. So yes, absolutely. It bears repeating. No revelation supersedes or replaces that of the revelation of Hashem from Sinai. Because this is what the Torah is. It is who Hashem is. He's revealing himself. His will is not a mystery for us to figure out. This is why he has given the Torah in the first place, so that we will know him. He has made very clear what he desires of us as his creation. And that is to serve him without expectation of anything in return, except that he grants life. He forgives, he's merciful. He's kind, he's just, that he may be feared, respected. The Hebrew word yireh, a reverential fear, a respect for him. Because that's what it means to be in covenant relationship with him, is to respect what he says. But if you're going to listen to a group of men from the first, the second century, such as Marcion, Polycarp, Augustine, who say, oh, we don't need to do that. That's done away with, you know, Jesus did away with that. We have something new. You're not to listen to them. Because the Torah is quite clear, and it's one of, as a matter of fact, it's a death penalty. You are to stone that prophet. You to put him to death. Yeah. And to put the evil away from you. Why? Because he's trying to draw you away from Hashem's loving instructions. Which, by the way, if you have something new, because you waited till the second and third century on um you break the tradition of what's known as the oral torah so what exactly do you have if you take that away because let's go back to the second century for a moment the new testament did not exist as a codified document so if you got rid of the tanakh chaspe shalom what exactly do you have? What objective standard do you have to live by that you can judge your actions by? That's the point of this rumination. Man, I never thought about it in those terms, which is why I'm vocalizing it, because so many times it's um, it doesn't uh, hit the consciousness to think wait a minute, the Bible didn't exist <laughs> in the format that we have it today. And especially none of these translations that we have today. No ESV, no NASB, no NIV, no message Bible, <laughs> no complete Jewish Bible. Like that didn't exist second century when all this went down. 
So to even think of, we have something new, we have a new covenant, but we don't have any written text. We have a few letters and we have a few eyewitness accounts, but no one has access to all that unless you were there in, in those general assemblies. So, and then who could read and write outside of the Jewish people at that point? <laughs> Hebrew at that point at that matter yeah were they fluent in hebrew and aramaic yeah because you didn't just have the tanakh you had the septuagint also yeah and uh, in order to get the greek down you had to have some serious sophisticated schooling going on so exactly your your grammar better be on its a-game yeah i mean well versed in hebrew grammar which is a point i stress myself by the way because I see too many people coming up with all these so-called crazy words, uh, one of which is uh, Jehovah, that does not exist in the vernacular in the Tanakh. Right. Nowhere is that present. Because for the first for the first thing is that there's no J sound in Hebrew. Yeah, there just isn't. And there are no W's, by the way. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, there are some that would point out that if you go back to the early Semitic alphabet, you, you do have that W sound, but that's just not used anymore. Right. Despite the fact that that's what the Torah was written in at the time it was given. Yeah. Because the way we pronounce the words, by the way, there's an oral tradition for that. This uh, week's Torah portion has a beautiful verse on that, that Rabbi Trugman spent a beautiful lecture talking about. Uh, the word Yara'e, which is appearing before Hashem to be seen during the festivals. We read it one way, even though it's written another way. So, I mean, you have things like that to take into account. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, read one day, one way, pronounced another. Uh, that has a lot to do with the Nikudo, especially regarding the four-letter name. Yes, especially. Yeah. But this is see, you bring up a very good point because this is why circumlocutions are used mm. to safeguard the sanctity of the name, because. Yeah. The four-letter name points to the very essence of Hashem. The Ein Sof. It has no form. So if you think you know how to pronounce it, that's idolatry. Yeah. Because he's formless. He's without beginning. He's without end. Timeless. If you pick up your stone Pumash or your stone Tanakh, the guide to pronunciation of the name, which immediately precedes the blessings of the Torah. Amen. Come on. And tell you the circumlocutions that are used to safeguard the sanctity of the name. And it clearly states that the name is timeless. <clears throat> so... That's the other thing. See, this is, um, we're getting back to standards. Yeah. 
Come on. You know, and people don't want to be held to it. They rather just come up with their own. I even had someone actually tell me I'd rather deal with the problems within Hebrew roots than deal with the strictness of Judaism. Clearly, he does not understand the Holocaust, the striving to be holy. It's not about strictness. It's about being holy. Mm. So, and when we're dealing with prophets here, clearly we see the dichotomy between a true Nevi'im of Hashem who Draw, who gets the people to do Teshuvah to return to the way of Hashem. For we know that his commandments are altogether righteous. Ki mitzvoteka emunah, he is faithful to his instructions. I mean, if you're going to say the Torah is done away with, then how do you, how do you know Hashem is going to be faithful? Oh. You've taken away his standard. <laughs> where are you building your faith on? Sand. Where, are you, where, where is your, I mean, where is your belief in that? You're saying, okay, if you're saying that the Torah is done away, then you clearly don't believe that Hashem is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how are you going to know about the Mashiach? Because that's the only way you learn about the Mashiach is through the Torah. Yeah, I, how can you say you know Jesus? As he just said, without the Torah, you know, it's impossible. You can't. How many times does it say, as it is written in the scripture, or to fulfill what it says in the scripture, and he began teaching about himself with the law of Moses? Oh, Luke 24. I mean, all those things are in the Gospels. <laughs> you know, oh, Yeshua boy. never quoted Paul. <laughs> That's the interesting point, because the theologians have, they don't even touch the master's words. Why? Because they can't do anything theological with it. Snap. This is why they use Paul. Flag on the play, 15-yard penalty. <laughs> but no, seriously, facts. Um, is this a good time to bring up the fact that the divine name was pronounced on Yom Kippur how many times by the Kohen Gadol in the temple precinct? Once, Ekat, or Ekat. Actually... Do you, have a Yom Kippur, do you have a Yom Kippur Maxor? No, I just have the Rosh Hashanah, but if you have it. Um, Bruh, let me just tell you. Cliff Notes, <laughs> spoiler alert, divine name gets pronounced a few times in the Rosh Hashanah Maxor during a service called the Avoda, which is one of the, I think there's five services that day. There's five prayer services. We normally do three. But we had an extra two on Yom Kippur because we have the Musaf and then we have another one uh, on Yom Kippur. But anyway, during this special service, the divine name gets pronounced a few times. And the backdrop to this 
is that the Shekinah pronounces it through the closed throat of the Kohen as he swallows. Wait a minute. How many times does the four-letter name show up show up in Burkhat Kohanim? Yeah, we need to pull it up. I'm grabbing my mock board. Uh, I'll just grab my umash for that. <laughs> Got your umash? Okay. I'll be in my tour. Away in a moxor, rock us for our head. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's quite all right. <laughs> terrible. That's just terrible. Okay. Well, I know where he's going to be. He's going to be in the studio recording all those tunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't do any tacoon tunes like that. <laughs> I should have though. That would have been fun. Okay. Yeah. One. Why is this little baby shivering in the cold and all they're bringing him is stones? Okay. Looks like sounds like. So in Burka Kohenim, the four-letter name appears three times. Okay. All right. So this is a part of the Musaf service of Yom Kippur. And it is known as Seder Ha'avoda. The temple service. And it breaks down all of the blood sprinkling and the different prayers and how there's a lot of atbash and olive tav going on. All right, I'm going to let you drive for a minute. I'll be right back. I'll go ahead and read Luke uh, 24-44 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Yeshua said to them, this is what I meant when I was still with you and told you that everything written about me in the Torah of Moshe, the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Tanakh telling them, here is what it says. The Mashiach is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And in his name, repentance leading to forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to people from all nations, starting with Yerushalayim. 
you are witnesses of these things. Now I am sending forth upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been equipped with power from above. He led them out toward Beit Anya. Then, raising his hands, he said a baraka over them. As he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. They bowed and worshipped him, then returned to Jerusalem, overflowing with joy, and they spent all their time in the temple courts, praising God. So, what we get from those passages is that he, the Mashiach told them of the verses in the Tanakh that describe him, and also the Torah. And he opened their minds so that they would understand what he was telling them. And it's like he's speaking in the third person here. As if Hashem was doing the talking rather than Mashiach. But this is consistent with Yochanan's gospel when he says the words that I speak are not my own, but that, but the father who speaks through me is the one who speaks. And then we have in Yeshiahu 40, verse 11, where it says, and he will not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor by the hearing of his ears, but in righteousness does he judge and plead the cause of the poor. And kind of segues into our the first paragraph of this rumination. Of course, it is obvious people do not want to be held to a standard, even if it is Hashem's standard. The dichotomy illustrates what is wrong with most people's Bible knowledge. Scripture has no authority out of context. A second axiom complements that statement. Man does not determine the context. Scripture does. We often use verses to make a point or to provide some proof to a statement. In reality, without the context of the passage, no quote has authority. It is the duty of the hearer as well as the one quoting to examine the context of any biblical quote. In my earlier statement about learning Hebrew grammar, is also applicable in this situation. Um, my Huversa, who I've been learning Hebrew grammar from for the last year and a half, uh, it makes the point quite strongly at times to remind me. Make sure you understand grammatically what the verse is saying to draw the surface meaning of the text. Which is one reason why Rashi is, is so studied. Because this is something he, he never draws away from the Peshat of the verse or strays from it, which is a better word for that. Um, so it's very important, you know, um, A lot of um, theologians, as well as lay people within Christianity, misunderstand the master's words 
in Matthew 7, 1 and Luke 6, 37. You know, what, what is the master really dealing with when he says, judge not and you won't be judged? You know, who's, who is he, what group of people is he speaking to? Because obviously the Talmudim are present when he is speaking these words. Because he's trying to teach them a, a principle of the Torah with this. In, in connection with this week's Parsha, and considering what I've read from the Ramban, something to guard against. Um, yeah, the Rambam continues his statement. The philosophers call such a person uh, Hakim. The cause for the phenomenon is not known. Nevertheless, the matter has been verified by observers. Perhaps the soul of that, of that person in its acuity clings, clings to a separate intelligence to which it is directed to know the future. And this person is justifiably called a prophet because he does prophesy in the sense that he foretells the future. And this is why the sign or wonder that he told you comes about in verse three. And he will produce to you a sign or a wonder And the Rambam discusses the meaning of the terms Oat and Mofet. The meaning of Oat is that it is a sign for something that will be occurring afterward resembling it. Like the idea that is stated, each man by his division, according to the signs of their father's household, uh, Numbers 2.2. Two. For when a prophet says such and such a thing is destined to occur, and when it happens, it will be an omen for this and that event, resembling that omen that will occur afterwards. That first thing is called a sign, oath. It is like what is stated, therefore my Lord himself will give you a sign Isaiah 7, 14, that God is with us. And from the name of the son of the prophet's wife. And the word oat is derived from the root ata to come about. Uh, see below uh, 33, uh, verse 2. So Rambam defines the word uh, mofet, wonder. The word mofet is used for a novel, i.e. extraordinary thing that is done before us involving a change of the world's natural laws. Like the idea that is stated to inquire of the wonder that happened in the land, uh, 2 Chronicles 32, 11. And I will set wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, Joel 3, 3. And Mofet is a word that is abridged from the word uh, uh, Mofleot, uh, mofle evoking 
wonder. With the Aleph omitted, as we find with the word uh, Sharit, in all the remainder of Israel, First uh, Chronicles 12.39, and the Hebrew language lends the word Mofet to anything that is outside the norm, even when it is not supernatural. As is stated, Ezekiel will be a wonder for you, Ezekiel 24, 24, and as scripture states, and you will speak and no longer be dumb, then you will be, then you will be a wonder for them. For Ezekiel's actions were a wonder in the eyes of the beholder, similar to she descended amazingly, uh, Pelaim in Lamentations 1, 9. And similarly, the Aramaic expression, the signs and the marvels and how great are his signs and how mighty are his marvels. Daniel 3, 32 and 33 mean the signs and wonders for the Hebrew word Pele translated as wonder and the Aramaic word see Tama translated as marvel have the same meaning. So we kind of get an idea of the, the standard and how those who stray from it tend to create their own, their own standard. And yet they ex expect people to follow them without question. We see this in the church quite often. I'm often amazed when I see how congregants extol their pastors and say, you know, how amazing they are. Um, my wife and I have often discussed it and find that this is completely unacceptable. They're a human being just like we are, you know, fallible, imperfect, um, which is, that's a condition that can easily produce spiritual arrogance. Same they, thing goes for the rabbis. Yeah, that to anyone, any one of us. I mean, yeah, I, was, uh, I was blessed to see, a, a, I guess, like a kind of documentary broadcast podcast deal where a gentleman had his rabbi actually come join him as he was uh, just kind of sharing and doing commentary as a blog of some sort. And the rabbi was saying, you know, things like that. We're human, too. You know, we we are prone to error. We can make mistakes and things like that. So I thought that was really cool to hear a studied rabbi from Safat, which if you're from Spot, I mean, come on. <laughs> that's, that's not a small statement. But yeah, just hearing him say that. And uh, I don't remember if he was a Rosh Yeshiva or not, but um, but yeah, I mean, he he's Yeshiva trained and everything. And so, uh, and he even gives lectures there. And so it's just kind of like, for a rabbi on that level to say, you know, we're human, you know, we can't, we don't, we're not to be put on pedestals and things like that. It's just, it's really cool because again, yeah. humans. I mean, what do we see in a typical synagogue service when it comes to the reading of the Torah? 
seven people are given the distinct honor of being able to go up and read the Torah. It's not a one-man show, you know? And during the prayer service, everyone participates. While, yes, you have the Kazan up there leading everybody, you know, so everyone's in unison, but there are parts of the Amidah where we break off on our own and we say it silently. And regardless of the pace of the person reading, they all wait. It, I think that really depends on some communities because I know in my Sudur, um, there are places where if you finish before the Kazan, before the next section, you have to wait for the Kazan's repetition of the next section. Right. That's normally what we do in our synagogue. You know, so that's a good time for personal prayer, supplication to Hashem, like any yeah. of your heartfelt prayers you want to pray. Because technically, after you do Shemoni Esrei, is your Tahina, you know, your supplication prayer. Which Even is why we do. have the, uh, the Elohai Neshama. Oh. I mean, no, not the Elohai Neshama. It's like, <laughs> my God, thus... Uh, may you may my soul be like dust to everyone. Uh, yeah, yeah. That prayer. Yeah. Those who speak against me, that my soul be dust. Yeah. That I not utter any words. Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting because what does Yeshua say when he sends out the Talmudim? Uh, they don't receive you. To dust off your feet, that would be a testimony against them. Notice he tells him, don't respond to them. Come on, man. Like we pray in that prayer. He, that's it. All he tells him, shake off the dust. Why? Because he recites the Amidah. He knows when he gets to that point in the Amidah, he knows. Why? Because the, these benedictions date back to the great assembly. Wow. So there's there's that. See, I mean, it's the standard of the elders. That is insane. It's, it's Devarim 17, uh, 12. And you are to do everything that they tell you. Matthew 23. They sit in the seat of motion. Whatever they tell you, you do. But do not do what they do. Mm -hmm. Which is be hypocrites. Don't do that. However, uh, update, not however, that's a terrible transition word for and, or in other news, there we go. <laughs> I was looking in the Rosh Hashanah or the Yom Kippur Maksor, and it is in the Musaf service that the divine name is recited by the Kohen, or actually it says the Kohenim would ascend the platform and they would, they would utter the divine name three times because the divine name is shows up three times in Burkha Kohanim. Yes, sir. So there you go. Musaf of Yom Kippur, divine name is recited three times by the Kohanim as they swallow. Oh, <laughs> uh, and what? Which I don't know about you, but I can't really speak if I'm in the middle of swallowing. <laughs> That's a remiss for when uh, 
Hashem tells Moshe, in three days I will descend on the mountain. Mm. And, and I just read Luke 24. Where nice. Mashiach would be put to death and three days later he would rise again. God would raise him from the dead. And they're ascending the platform as they do this. Oh my God. <sighs> That's crazy, man. That is so crazy. <laughs> yep. So, what is the context of judge not lest you be judged? Bring in some context. The quote is found in Matthew 7, 1 and Luke 6, 37. Both passages go on to use the metaphor of something stuck in the eye to explain Yeshua's otherwise shocking statement that we should not judge. Mm. This is a Talmudic expression, by the way. Come about the, the left eye and the right eye, the evil eye, the good eye. There is another statement by the master that is similar to this um, regarding the fig tree that he curses. Oh my goodness. Seriously? And his Talmudim asked him, why did you curse the fig tree? Nice. You know, because he found no fruit on it. Which, that reminds me of Yochanan's statement, any tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Parsha team, don't chop down a fruit tree because man is a tree of the field. Mm -hmm. Oaks of righteousness. Um, if you, and the master says regarding the fig tree, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, nothing, and you command this mountain to be moved, and it will be moved. That is a, a Talmudic statement also. That is, if you have a mountainous opinion that is not consistent with the Torah, hmm. and this is very common in the Talmud. You see this all the time where the mountain is you're stuck on an opinion. You think you're right when everyone else is wrong. That's what the Ramban is saying here. I'll read that statement again. Scripture calls him a prophet in conformity with his own false description of himself. That's a 13-2, right? Yeah. That's the Ramban on Deborim 13, verse 2. That's, man. That's a mountain that can be moved. If you have Emunah as that of a mustard seed, and you say to this mountain, your own preconception, your own opinion about a matter, how you perceive something. I mean, you know how we get older, we tend to get set in our ways. My own mother reminds me of that all the time. <laughs> it, oh, man. And I'm constantly challenged with this. I can't settle into that because 
if I serve Hashem, I don't have that luxury. No, because we do not. Because <laughs> all the Kasal and Talmud certainly did it. They didn't have that luxury. They moved these mountains all the time. Their Emunah was like off the charts. Man. What is it? The righteous go from strength to strength? Yeah. And every Elul is uh, taking stock of what in the world have we been doing for a year? <laughs> Judgment day is coming. Oh. You know? You know, and then um, Rabbi Trugman was bringing down this week that uh, during Rosh Hashanah, we're giving birth to ourselves. This is why the shofar blasts are going on. And there's a whole thing with the nine months, the nine letters that are in the shofar blast. If you think about the shofar blast sounding like a woman crying out at birth, you know, thinking about the birth pains and how all of that ties and connects to this time in the season. Oh. Um, <laughs> the month of Elul is the month of the, uh, the Batula, the young maiden, you know, and we talked about the 52 days, the sun and all that kind of stuff. Right. So like, if you think about, if you never ever throughout your whole year, work on becoming new, you, we are, not quite forced because obviously free will, but literally Hashem has built it in to the Jewish life that at least once a year, you're to grow, you're to change, you're to um, make rectifications into Kuhn for your fails. You know, don't get stuck in the loop kind of thing. So I, I personally find that very comforting that Hashem is like, let me help you out. <laughs> In case you're not uh, diligent in that area. I'm going to give you 40 days to figure some things out. <laughs> so I think that's like you talk about grace. I like I, that's cool that you brought that up because a little tidbit from Torah Wellsprings. Who is wise? Hmm. One who sees what will be born, no lead. Get out of here. What page do is you, that? Okay, do you have Tamid 32A? <laughs> that is you have that, my second. Go grab it if you have it. Uh, but wait, what page of Wellsprings are you on, though? Well, this is just a little snippet that I get in WhatsApp. Oh, you got the okay. I'm gonna go Tommy 328. Um, the Beit Ayin in Parashah uh, explains that one who does Teshuva is compared to a newborn, no lead. The Gemara is teaching us wisdom for life. One should always view themselves as just born and starting a clean slate. This will make it easy to do Teshuva properly. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what? <laughs> Man. Wow. So one of the songs, Shameless Plug, is Matan Torah. It's probably the most Jewish song I have on the little uh, EP I'm working on. 
And in there, I talk about uh, every day receiving the Torah, like you're standing at Mount Sinai, right? Um, so I say, um, okay, so it says Stalin on them, original, too fresh, D.O. for the B.O. Every day we knew, Kabbalah old, renew. Did you just say B.O.? <laughs> yeah, because our, our, our uh, not making Teshuva gives us terrible body odor in the spirit. Does that realm. mean I have to run and uh, use my uh, deodorant? <laughs> yeah, which is funny because, you know, Naseva Nishma means we will do like D.O. <laughs> and then the whole thing about Mount Sinai was we all uh, we were receiving the Torah and we died and Hashem used do to resurrect us, you know. Oh. It's Josh music, man. I'm just I love- so, I'm just so, it's so funny. I, I'm. Because <laughs> we're going to be judged. I need some Simkah right now, so that's perfect. You just, you know, <laughs> it's to bring Rafua. It's a coot. Yeah. Oh, boy. Anyway, Midbar H, coming soon. There, uh, I completed my shameless blood. Okay. Where am I heading 32A? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's kind of taking me back to that, uh, the Shabbat previous to this last one. <laughs> yes. Pretty going out about the crow, and I'm like, oh my goodness, man, we just can't stop doing it. <laughs> it was so great. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, I couldn't. <laughs> oh. Crows for life. <laughs> crows crows for life. matter. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my god. It didn't come up there, man. So I had to get the shameless plug there. So <laughs> and oh you can just god. hear the Yona saying, Well, what? I don't matter now? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> what about oh, me? Like, what about I, me? I just brought that up. Oh my goodness. Do you see the correlation there? Mm-hmm. Oh that's just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> do it man do, do you see the parallel between that and today mm-hmm. what I mean, about you, you have protesters about? who weren't a black yet there's this one lady who was so scared she literally apologized for the slavery of the past couple of the, the past couple hundred years wow. I mean that <laughs> wow yeah good night I mean <laughs> that oh. is he at his finest <laughs> that was the crow at his finest I guess <laughs> well you know what's so funny because Yona is uh, the same as Jonah right and so Jonah was like what about me with the Kikayon <laughs> You know, because you're just like, man, freaking uh, Nineveh. 
Like, get out of here. Yeah, like, he was dude. just so put out with their making chuva, and he was just like, man, I didn't want to go so talk to them. I upset that they did chuva, man. Bruh. It's <laughs> behaving like the crow, man. <laughs> Seriously, it's terrible. <laughs> What are you doing, Yona? Come on. You're supposed to be the dove resting on the master, man. Come on. And Eretz Israel, because that's what the Midrash says. Yeah. <laughs> Go get the olive branch. Just come yeah. on. Yeah. Peace offering, you know. Man. Okay, come I found it. What it means. <laughs> I found the duff. Ah. Yay. Do you want to read it or you want to? Share something first. No, go for it. Read. Okay. The Gemara continues the questions and answers. Alexander said to them, who is called a wise man? Side note, who is this Alexander? Uh, if I go back too far, I'm, I don't want to lose my place. I'm wondering if this is Alexander the Great. Hmm. But who knows? Back to where we were. Okay. He says, who is called a wise man, which is uh, a chachim, a wise person. Um, they said to him, who is a wise man? He who sees a future development. It says the verse states, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes 2.14. The wise man has his eyes in his head. When a wise man is still at the standing or at the beginning of something, he foresees what will be at the end. Yerushalayimi Sota 8.10. In all his matters that are important to his being, he considers the consequences in the future of his actions and the presence. Uh, Rambam to Pirkei Avot 2.12. And uh, Pirkei Avot 4 and 1. It says, in regard to how this principle applies to matters of the spirit. That's interesting. They have a whole bunch of sources for that. So continuing. He said to them, who is called a mighty man? They said to him, who is a mighty man? He who overcomes his evil inclination. And I don't remember what this word is. Ha-kovesh. But I think it has to do with uh, subduing, like wrestling into submission, which is uh, interesting with Shaul's passage in Corinthians about beating my flesh into submission. Right? Because the flesh and the yetzer are uh, used as synonyms in Jewish thought. So it says he overcomes his urges to sin. And he overcomes his urges to become angry, as it says in Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than a strong man. And a master of his passions is better than a conqueror of a city. The Chovos Halevavos 5, 5 relates the story of one saintly individual who met an army returning from a difficult battle laden with spoils they had taken. He said to them, you have returned with Hashem's help from the minor battle and you have taken spoils. Be prepared for the major battle. 
They replied to him, what major battle? He said to them, the battle against the evil inclination and his forces, which I think is interesting that when it comes to battling the evil inclination, it's not just the evil inclination. It's also the forces that are associated with it, which is interesting because a man is led away by his own desires, right? And then ultimately committing the sin and, and bringing about death, which we know the Yetzahara, the Satan, and the angel of death work in tandem with each other. And so to know that our desires are supposed to be channeled for holiness, which is what the Torah actually helps us to do. It's like, you're hungry. Here's how you eat, you know, all these kinds of things, just for an example. But those desires can be taken and manipulated, which could be converted into the forces of the evil inclination. So that's interesting. But it goes on to say, he said to them, who is called a wealthy man? They said to him, a wealthy man, who is a wealthy man? He who is happy with his portion. He said to them, what should a man do to live? They said to him, he should kill himself. Wow. <laughs> Seriously, you shall die daily. <laughs> this is Tommy oh, 32A. In the Talmud, Tamid 32a, it just happened. <laughs> you want to know the Hebrew? It's Yamit Atzmo. Bring death to your bones. Bring death to your essence. That's happening right now. <laughs> I.e., he should toil away at a job, even if he finds it unpleasant. Oh, Oh, <laughs> Generation Z, I'm sorry to tell you, but this is something that we have to learn because a lot of people, for some reason, feel so entitled. I don't like my job, so therefore I don't have to do it. And I expect to get paid and I expect to get all sorts of bonuses and recognitions and raises. Shots fired, but they're aimed at a specific direction. So anyway. <laughs> He should not indulge himself excessively in physical pleasures, and he should trouble himself to study the Torah. Footnote. I, or if he does so, he will live in this world and in the world to come. And that is cited by the Rosh. Now, what's amazing about this is we mentioned in a previous rumination, what does it mean to kill yourself in a Torah uh, aspect it means to bring yourself to the altar like self-sacrifice but here the sages bring down specific practical fundamental lines this is how you kill yourself work very very hard have a good job whether you like it or not get a job <laughs> don't indulge in excessive physical pleasure and trouble yourself to study the torah three things uh, so i think that's like really really yeah. amazing one more and then i'll hand okay. it over because i know you got a i know you got a load of things right here okay <laughs> he asked them what should a man do to die they said to him he should enliven himself 
which the Hebrew says, <laughs> he shall bring life, like resurrect his bones, resurrect his essence. <sighs> Goodness. Okay. So he should enliven himself, i.e. he should do the opposite of what we said before. Alexander did not necessarily take this advice to heart. According to some historical narratives, his death one month before he turned 33. <laughs> this is too much. Okay. Was medically 33. <laughs> his death was medically related to his strong penchant for alcohol. Oh, come on. He's, he, he was drunk, as you suppose. Anyway, uh, he said to them, what should a man do to be received well by other people? They said to him he should maintain an aversion to royalty and governance, i.e. he should distance himself from the ruling authorities lest others suspect him or accuse him of informing them. Alexander was not happy with this answer. And he said to them in response, my approach is better than yours. He should make himself familiar with royalty and governance and thereby do favors for people, which will in turn make him popular. Famous last words. Anyway, that's the end of that section. The Gemara goes on and it probably starts talking about other stuff. But that's amazing. Tamid 32A. <laughs> Don't care about nobody's feelings. It's like Corinthians. Um, Matthew. <laughs> Dropping bombs, man. Okay. Do you think? Um reminded me um were you reading from the arts the uh from the Scottistine talmud yes do you know the masor sauce for that no because it made me think of i voted sarah 10b around when they're talking about antoninus really um it's going to read from Hafez Kaim as well. If you say the Torah is done away with, that's the Shan Hara, by the way. Oh. Um. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We have a saying at work. Calm down, big brother. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm screenshotting this. This is amazing. Um, the part of the Gemara I'm looking for is when they're talking about uh, oh yeah, woe to the ship that goes without having paid its taxes. Ooh. This is a rather lengthy Gemara about uh, Antonina. Uh this is the part where they're talking about the uh, Cretaceum, 
where they honor the emperor's birthday. Oh, we have a birthday party. A very pagan one at that. <laughs> oh, snap. It's about to get pagan up in here. Um, wherever you want to start from. Before giving Katea's second reason, the Gabari elaborates on the first, as it is written for, like the four directions of the heavens, I, God, have scattered you, Israel. What does the verse mean? If you say it means that God scattered the Jews in the four directions, what is the intent of this phrase? Like the four directions. It should have said in the four in the four directions. Rather, God was drawing an analogy between Israel and the winds. Just as it is impossible for the world to exist without winds, so it is impossible for the world to exist without Israel. There wow. was a Hasidic Rebbe, uh, Yitzhak of Berdich, who said, you can be for God, you can be against God, but you cannot be without God. Wow. Ponder that. <laughs> he says that. Man. Say la. <laughs> the second reason given by Katea Bar Shalom to the, to the Caesar. Furthermore, if you eliminate the Jews that are under your authority, you will be called the ruler of a severed kingdom. Listen up, church. Wow. wow. If, a house divided have, against itself. Self cannot stand. <laughs> when you were reading from Tamid, I thought, okay, this is a good Messorah shots for that. Hmm. Because part of its population has been eliminated. The Caesar said to Katia, you have indeed spoken well. However, the law dictates that whoever prevails against the king is cast into the round chamber. As the Caesar's men were taking him and going to the chamber, a certain mat uh, matron called out to Katia, woe to the ship that goes without having paid its taxes. So Katia fell on the top of his foreskin and cut it off. He said, I have paid my tax. I shall leave this world and pass into the world to come. As they were throwing him into the chamber, he said, all my possessions should go to Rav Akiva and his colleagues. The Gemara hmm. explains how this gift was divided. Rabbi Akiva went out and expounded the following verse. It, the panim bread, shall be to Aharon and his sons. By mentioning Aharon separately, the verse equates him with his sons, from which we derive that half of the loaves are given to Aharon and half to, this, half to his sons. So here, as well, since Katias singled out Rav Akiva by name, he presumably meant that half of his possessions should go be given to Rabbi Kiva and half to his colleagues. The story of Katia is continued. A heavenly voice emanated and proclaimed, Katia, 
Bar Shalom is ready for the life of the world to come. Rebbe wept and said, There is one who acquires his portion in the world to come in one hour. And there is another who acquires his portion in the world to come only after many years. You realize you're quoting the source for the thief on the stake next to Mashiach. Yeah. Today you will be with me in paradise. And this is a Vodazera what? Uh, 10B, 3 and 4. I love it. The Gemara elaborates further on Antoninus and another righteous Gentile. Antoninus waited upon Rebbe, Adarkan waited upon Rav. When Antoninus died, Rebbe said, the bundle is unraveled. When Antoninus died, Rav said, and it brings us into 11a, the bundle is unraveled. And you know what that reminds me of? Untie the bundle, Sam. Is there a footnote on that? Oh, <laughs> the unraveled. I have this knack for asking a question like that when people close. Rebbe was distressed upon realizing that heaven was will use Katia's behavior as the standard to judge all people by showing how much can be achieved in a short time. Katia's example challenges everyone to use his moments to their full potential and not waste a single one. Ine Yitzhak, cross-reference uh, Maharsha, see also 17a, note 61. And note 36 on the phrase in the Gemara, uh, relate Antoninus waited upon Rebbe, a dark and waited upon Rav, a dignitary of an idolatrous nation, Rashi's comment. And note 37, the love that bound our souls together can no longer thrive, Rashi, printed on 11a. But then my favorite part of this Masakit is the conversion of Onkelos. And he started converting people like I nobody. Mean, just, I mean, it just doesn't get better than that, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's awesome. I, I firmly believe Hashem impressed upon me to buy this track tape. Baruch Hashem. And so I obeyed. <laughs> Blessed are the obedient ones. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be sated. Amen. And regarding Lashon Hara, saying the Torah is done away with, the uh, from uh, the Hafez Kaim, Introduction to the Laws of Lashon Hara and Rekilu. And, and Lashon Hara, just to define, uh, translate these two Hebrew words, Lashon Hara is evil speech. Rekilut is repeating it. Is what? Repeating it in the oh. ears of someone else. Wow. 
So there's the evil speech and then the re repeating of evil speech. Which means, which means the perpetuation of the original Lashon Hara speaking against Mo Moses and the Torah and things like that. And then Reki Lut has been happening for 2,000 years. Exactly. And the three things mentioned in Tami 32a, there are three people that you murder with your words. The speaker, the hearer, and the one whom you're speaking about. Okay. By your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Yeshua says these things. He says, I didn't, I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> You're in judgment. There's already yourself. one that judges you. Hashem doesn't need to judge us because our actions bear witness, our deeds. See, this is what I'm talking about. We can judge one another's deeds, but you cannot. Absolutely not judge someone's emunah. Mm. We're not commanded to do that. This is why Jews aren't freaked out about people, whether or not they're saved. <laughs> exactly. We don't go around with that mentality. Because in Judaism, it is clearly understood that salvation is not eternal. It's not guaranteed. Your deeds greatly determine your portion in the world to come. As I, just sure read from a, as I just read from Avodah Zarah. Right. Katia sure merited sure. the world to come in a single day. Yom Echad. <laughs> I think, isn't there a, um, a passage where a person also lost their, um, their place in the Alam Haba, like at the last minute? Oh, yeah. Uh, Bava Metzia 56a, he who whitewashes his friend has no place in the world to come. Yeah, because like... I it's feel quoted like here in Hafez Kaim. It's quoted in here. Wow. <laughs> um, as I'm about to read, even the, even the, the, the preface for this is scathing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean... But anyway... Um, Okay, introduction to the laws of Lashon Har and Rekilu. And the Blessed One's love for his people Israel and his great desire for their good to the point of calling them sons and the portion of the Lord and inheritance, along with many other terms of affection which show his great love for Israel, viz. Malachi 1-2, I have loved you said the Lord, etc. He distanced them from all forms of evil, especially from Lashon Hara and Rekilu. For it is these which bring men to quarrels and contention, which very often can lead to the spoiling, the spilling of blood. As the Rambam wrote in Hilkot Deot for one, even though there are no Malkut stripes, for transgression of this negative commandment, it is a great sin, which leads to the killing of many souls in Israel, for which reason, i.e., do not go tailbearing among your people, Vayikra 1916, is followed by, do not stand idly by the blood of your brother, 
as evidenced by the episode of Doeg, ha Adomi, and Nav, the city of priests, viz. 1 Samuel 22.9. Some additional great evils brought about by this despicable trait. It is well known that the sin of the primal serpent was brought about by the Lashon Har that it spoke against the Holy One, blessed be he, saying to Eve, he, God, ate from this tree, the tree of knowledge, and created the world, by which Eve was enticed to do likewise. Vish, Shabbat 146a, the serpent was intimate with Eve and injected Zuhama, pollution. The Arizal uses this word in his writing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what? We say that in the Sephirat HaOmer Brach. We actually have Zahama that we talk about extracting that from us. Yeah. During the Omer count. That's amazing. Hence the sin of illicit relations. And also death to all mankind. Hence the spilling of blood. And we know life is in the blood. The nefesh resides in the dam. Nefesh Adam. That's it. And through this, i.e. Lashon Hara, it induced Adam and Hava to transgress the will of the Holy One. Blessed be he. It follows that one who speaks Lashon Hara adopts it. The serpent's trait which undermines the creation. Now we'll bring up uh, Rabbi Foreman on this because the oh serpent was incredibly deceptive in only using Elohim, not coupled with the four-letter name. Wow. You know what this is making me think about is how we're adopted as sons by the Ruach HaKodesh, but you are also adopted as sons, Chasve Shalom, by Lashon Hara, <laughs> you become a son of the serpent, which is interesting because the commentary is that Cain was descended of the serpent and also Esav. Even though Esav was born from the union of Yitzhak and Rivka. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Which is so crazy because we talk about Yitak as the Akeda. He's the one who was marked and bound. He was the one who was offered up. He's the one who was considered Kadosh to Hashem so much so that he never left the confines of Yisrael. And so you have Rivka, the bride of the one who was offered up, the one who is in the image of the father, you know, and all that, right? She's married to him. And so obviously the, um, the given is that people think, oh, yeah, so like the church and the Messiah. Well, the only problem with that is think about the the twisted, corrupted picture that is. That's like Zimri and Cosby, you know, like I'm like Zimri was like, I'm better than Moses. You can be with me like you. Z, uh, Cosby was supposed to come and seduce Moses. You know, but. Zimri was like, oh, don't worry about seducing him. If you got me, that's all you need, you know, kind of thing. And so you have like this crazy distortion going on. So like 
what I'm getting at basically is that this whole thing about uh, who are the descendants of the Nahash, you know, the progenitors of Lashon Hara, and you can even see that in the coupling of the one who was offered up and his own wife. Like, wow. even in that union, the offspring, one of those offspring was still uh, considered to be offspring of the Nakash, which blows my mind because oh. <laughs> how do you be a child of Yitzhak and just be like, yeah, you're not my dad? <laughs> Oh, dude, now you're touching on the Arab rap, man. <laughs> and I have that book open up in Kindle. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, go for it. <laughs> okay, um, this is from Chapter 1 of Secrets of the Arab Rav. Before we can even begin to discuss who the Arab Rav really are and what the consequences for today's Jewish community, we first need to know more about the background. This is where we'll discover the first secret of the Arab rap because far from being strange, Egyptian non-Jews who decided to jump on the Jewish bandwagon, the Arab rap have been deeply connected to the Jewish people from the beginning of time. Let's find out how. The Arab rap in the Torah, the first time the Torah explicitly mentions the Arab rap is in Exodus 12, 37 through 38. When it says, the children of Israel travel from Ramesses to what? Eton? Sukkot. Oh, Sukkot. Okay. There were about 600,000 adult males on foot. Besides the children. The Arab Rav also went up with them. But... That is not the first time they actually appear in the Torah. Mm. To discover where the spiritual roots of the Arab actually begin, we have to travel back in time before the Egyptian exile to the Gan Edan. Goodness. Adam HaRishon's connection to the Arab Every school child knows that Adam HaRishon, the first man, made a huge mistake when he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. When Adam ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, evil stopped being something external Oh, to man, as embodied by the primordial snake in the Garden of Eden and became an internal part of humanity instead. Like I'm saying, Adam HaRishon descended from Adam Kadmon down to the knowledge of good and evil when he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So through something we ate, we fell from a high lofty level. You wonder why Kashrut is such a thing, which is in this week's Torah portion. They will have to do a part two. (laughs) (laughs) Food for thought. Yeah. Uh, Now, instead of being solely good, human beings had an internal fight 
on their hands between their urge for good and their newly acquired urge for evil, or what's often referred to as the Yetzirah in Hebrew. There were many, many consequences of Adam's big mistake. The main ones we're going to focus on for this book are the following. Adam's sin brought death into the world instead of living forever. Mankind now had to die. God and his direct control of the world became hidden instead of being openly revealed. Man, what? Adam Kadmon, the primordial man, unrestricted access to the Or Ain Sof. I mean, wow. Because, I mean, when Mashiach is here ruling for the final Geula, the whole world's going to see Hashem. Like, so the whole repair of that, it's just crazy. That's the rectification that has to take place. From what I'm reading here, evil, the evil inclination or Yetzirah became an integral part of man's spiritual and emotional psyche. Where good and evil were previously kept strictly separate, now they were completely mixed up in the world. And nowhere more so than inside man himself. Why do bad things happen to good, good people? people. <laughs> there you go. There's your answer right there, man. <laughs> oh, okay. The Gemara in Erevin 18b tells us that after he had committed the terrible sin of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam separated from his wife and involuntarily emitted seed for a period of 130 years. In his foundational work on the Kabbalah called Sha'ar Ha-Kavanot, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, the Arizal, explains that the dark side captured the souls contained in this wasted seed, Sagim. And that they subsequently needed to go through many uh, Gilgalim before they could start to be purified. They had to go through all that just to get to the point where their rectification, their purification could actually begin. Oh, wow. Wow. The Arizal explains that these souls are not are the root of both the Arab Rav and Am Yisrael. This is something I've explained previously that the Arizal says in Parashah Shemot, for there are two groups of people, the people of Israel and the B'nai Yisrael. Wow. The, the Arab Rav's Egyptian connection the Arizal explains that these souls started their rectification process when they were Gilgalim as the generation of the flood. They continued the process when they were Gilgalim again as the generation of the dispersion, referring to the people who built the infamous Tower of Babel. Next, they came back again as the cruel inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Avraham, Avinu's time, and then finally, they were reincarnated again in ancient Egypt at the time of the Egyptian exodus. Those souls have been sufficiently rectified and purified by the process they had already gone through, were reincarnated, reincarnated into B'nai Yisrael, or the children of Israel. 
but the souls who had not been sufficiently rectified by their previous incarnations became the heir of Rav, or mixed multitude, the millions of Egyptian converts who came out of Egypt with the children of Israel. As mentioned, the Torah first explicitly mentions the heir of Rav in Shemot 12, 37-38, when it informs us that the children of Israel traveled from Ramesses towards Sukkot, there were about 600,000 adult males on foot. That number just so happens to be the number of letters in the Torah. Besides the children, the Arab also went up with him. The connection between the Zedekim and the Arab and another of his Kabbalistic works called Sha'are HaPesukim, the Arizal explains in the chapter on Shemot 1.8 that when the Torah describes Pharaoh's complaints that the people, the children of Israel, are more numerous and greater than us, he wasn't just talking about Yaakov's, Avinu's direct descendants, the children of Israel. He was also talking about the millions of Egyptians who had already converted over the past few years as a result of the efforts of Yaakov Avinu and his son, de facto ruler of ancient Egypt, Yosef Hazarik. Pharaoh's reference to the people was referring to those Egyptian converts, while his reference to the children of Israel was talking about a distinctly separate group, Yaakov Avino's direct biological descendants. You know, from this chapter, you can derive why a lot of um, Beitins are ever so cautious. And the process that you're going through right now with uh, this rabbi is indicative of this. Because they're constantly on the guard against the Arab Rav. Right. Especially since they're, they had a big role in the uh, Eagle Zahav and the Sin of the Spies. Um, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Jewish patriarchs were deeply engaged in trying to rectify these lost souls that came about as a result of Adam's wasted seed right from the beginning. It is also no coincidence that Abraham Avinu exerted so much effort trying to convince God to spare the incredibly sinful communities of Sodom and Gomorrah. On a very deep level, Abraham knew about the true source of the souls contained in the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and their spiritual connection to the Jewish people and was trying to rectify their spiritual blemish even then. But the time was not yet ripe, and the people had to be reincarnated again in Egypt before they were truly ready for the next stage of the rectification process. When Yosef HaZadik found himself as the de facto ruler of Egypt, he understood that the next part of that process had begun. And as Rashi tells us in his comments on Parashat Miketz, verse 56, he made all of the Egyptians circumcise themselves before he would give them any supplies from his stores of grain. There are different explanations given for this, but the one that's pertinent to this book is that Yosef HaZadik understood that these souls have been spiritually damaged as a result of what's called 
pagam habrit, or blemishing the covenant. The waste to see that Adam admitted in the 130 years that he was separated from his wife. One of the main ratifications for this sin is the mitzvah of Brit Milah, or circumcision. Together with his father Yaakov, Yosef HaZadik was already busy trying to rectify these lost souls down in Egypt a hundred years before Am Yisrael would leave under the aegis of Moshe Rabbeinu. While the Jewish people were further along in the process of rectification, the Arab Rav were actually from the same spiritual root and also required fixing. This idea is further underlined by the fact that the plague of darkness. Rashi explains that four-fifths of Am Yisrael died, leaving just 600,000 Jewish men to go out with their wives and children to receive the Torah under Moshe Rabbeinu. If we do the math, that means around 2.4 million people died in that plague. And that's the same number of Egyptian converts or Arab Rav who traveled out with Am Yisrael when the Jews left Egypt. So wait, the Left Behind series started with the Plague of Darkness? <laughs> During the Plague of Darkness, 2.4 wow. million died. And those who were left behind were the ones who went to receive the Torah. Wow. Do you remember last week when I read from the Ramban uh, on Genesis 17? Yes. Nine, that absolute ridiculousness that we started out with. <laughs> when he says that the Brit Mila is to bring into subjection the male organ to prevent uh, sexual sins, mm -hmm. which Adam HaRishon should have done, but he didn't. Actually, the sages say he pulled his foreskin back over, like yeah. what we read about during uh, the, uh, the Hellenism time period for the Hanukkah account. Yeah. Uh, in other words, he did Pagam Habri. Yeah. There was a lot of accounts of uh, Jews wanting to appear uncircumcised among the Greeks so that they could go to the workouts, so that they could go to the Olympic Games and things like that, that they used to do all the different contests. Yeah, the Greeks saw circumcision as a uh, molestation of the human form because they worshipped the human form hedonism. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting, First Peter 4, uh, so the letter that Kepha wrote, uh, he talks about the fact that the Mashiach went to give good tidings to those who are dead so that they might be judged as men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. That is the era of Rob that you're talking about that to undergo all these purifications because the generation of the flood was said to have not entered into the Alam Haba. So again, through the process of Gilgul, you can actually see it uh, here in first uh, Kepha chapter four, verse six. So. And by the way, the angel appointed to go to Gehenna to bring up souls 
that are held captive there, that angel's name is Yeshua. <laughs> it's codified in Jewish commentary. Yeah, see, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu's connection to the Arab Rav. Now, perhaps we can also start to understand why Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader of Am Yisrael, was so willing for these Egyptian converts to come along for the ride, despite the fact that even God warned Moshe against including them in the exodus from Egypt. On some level, Moshe was continuing the work of the previous Zedekim and was trying to rectify these lost souls that came from the same root stock as the Jewish people. But unfortunately, the time was not yet ripe for the full rectification of these souls. The Arizal mentions this. So this is the, the harvest is right. Like the fields are ready for the harvest. The and workers the, and the are, laborers few. are few. Yeah. Wow. So there comes a time where the Arab Rob are ready to be harvested. Yeah. Where the rectification will be complete. And this is why the Mashiach descended to begin that process. This is why he sent us out to the nations. So this is why we have to go out to the nations. Wow. That's why the exile is taking so long because are we really out there harvesting? Yeah. Wow. Influencing, and LaShawn? Yeah. Influencing uh, people to come out, you know. In other words... You know, the, the people you mentioned to me before at your workplace, whom you're talking to and, and conversing with and what they're telling you where they're at, that's a sign of this rectification. Yeah. See, this is what I mean is that you don't have to actively go out there and say, oh, you need to repent. No, Hashem's going to put them in your path. Why? Because their rectification has reached a point where they're ready to learn. It's time. <laughs> wow, that's so beautiful. Um, let's see, the rectification of these souls and the world generally to be completed, as we will discuss a little later on. Consequently, most of the problems that the Jews faced in the wilderness came from their association with the unrectified Arab Rav. So this is the first secret of the era of Rob. Spiritually, so they come from the same place as the Jewish people. They are just further back in the rectification process. Okay. Okay. For now, for now park that idea in the back of your mind somewhere. We're going to come back to it in subsequent chapters. But first, we have to figure out why the era of Rob has such a bad name in our sources and why they pose such a huge challenge to Am Yisrael if they're effectively coming from the same spiritual root as the Jewish people. There's a lot of people I know who want to hear about this. So why do, because the, uh, the Medrash says notorious with a capital N for <laughs> slamming and school busing the Arab Rav and then being like, no, we love them. They're great people. They, they just, um, uh, they're awesome. They're converts. They came into Torah. They left their homes. And then it's like, but they made us do the golden calf. And they made us crave meat, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> I, I mean, are we, are we for, are we getting, like, what are we doing? You know? 
I mean, it's so easy to uh, engage in Torah terrorism, when it, especially when it comes to the church. Terrorism, these words. You know, and we should be careful because, you know, we can we would be engaging in Lashon Hara. Mm-hmm. Because that's the next paragraph in this, in the, uh, the laws of Lashon Har and Rekilut, um, in the descent of Israel into Egypt, too, that too stem initially from this, i.e., from Lashon Har, Biz, Bereshit 37.2, and Yosef brought evil report of them, the sons of Leah, to their father, whence it was decreed by heaven, measure for measure, that he be sold into slavery. His having accused them of calling their brothers from the maidservants slaves. Viz Bereshit Rabbah 84.7 and Yushalami Pe'ah 1.1. Though Yosef had to heter halakhic license for bringing this evil report, as the uh, exegetes explain, it is to be noted that his heter did not avail him and he was sold into slavery. And again, the entire reason for our present exile is the sin of the spies, viz. Tehillim 106, 25-27. And they murmured in their tents against the land. They hearkened not to the word of the Lord, and he lifted up his hand in an oath against them to scatter them in the lands. As Rashi explains there, and as the Ramban wrote on Bamidbar 14.1, and it is stated in Erechim 15a that the sin of the spies was essentially Lashon Hara. They're giving out an evil report of the land. And because they then, on the eve of the ninth of Av, cried a vain cry. It, the ninth of Av, was decreed for them as a crying for the generations. Example, the destruction of both temples, etc., and countless other evils befell us because of this grave sin for all the sages of Israel who were killed by King Yananeh in the days of Shimon ben Shatak, the brother-in-law of King Yanai, were also killed because of the sin of Rekilu, viz. Kiddushin 66a, and the murder of, Tana, of the Tana, Rav Elazar Hamode which also contributed to the destruction of Betar, was likewise caused by Rekulut, which was spoken against him before Ben uh, <coughs> Koziba, viz. Aika Rebah 2.4. And because of the gravity of the evils found in this evil trait, the Torah exhorted us specifically against it by negative commandment, viz. Vayikra 19.16, do not go tailbearing among your people, as shall be explained below, as opposed to anger, cruelty, and levity, and the other corrupt traits, which even though they undermine the majesty of the soul and its form, they are alluded to in many places in the Torah, as explained in the words of Kazal, with all this, there is no explicit negative commandment against them, as there is against Rekilut in the count of uh, Taryag, the 613 commandments of the Torah. And we shall know yet another reason for the Torah's exhorting us explicitly against these, Lashar and Hara and Rekilut. 
For when we analyze them in truth, we find them to include almost all the negative and positive commandments which obtain between a man and his neighbor and many between a man and his maker. As we shall explain, God willing, it is for this reason that the Torah exhorted us against these explicitly, so that we not become enmeshed in this evil snare. I shall explain this with the help of the Blessed One, and from this there shall follow, incidentally, great benefit, vis a vis many other holocaust, and also perhaps because of this, the Yetzer will be smitten when he, the transgressor, perceives the great havoc and harm wrought by his speech. And here I begin with the help of him who grants a man knowledge. And the prayer that I read from the inside cover of every Talmudic volume. Yeah. Yeah. First, we must know the principles of these halakot of Lashon Hara and Rekilut. Lashon Hara is speaking despairingly against one's friend and Rekilut telling one, the evil thing that his friend has spoken against him or done against him. The principles. It, Lashar Hara and Rekilut, is forbidden even if true. It will be explained below. Please God, in the name of all the post scheme. Also, the prohibition of Lashar Hara and Rekilut applies both in his, the object's presence, and not in his presence. And also, there is no difference between speaking and receiving. Lashon Hara and Rekilut, all of which we shall explain further. A receiver of Lashon Hara is one who believes in his heart what is told him by his friend, even if he does not abet him in the telling, but only believes in his heart the Lashon Hara and Rekilut that he has heard. If he does not believe it, he is called the bearer of a false report. And transgressions, Shemot 23.1, do not bear a false report. All of these principles have roots and branches as in the other parts of the Torah. May the Lord grant that we know them comprehensively and know that whenever we write that the transgressors, that he transgresses both the negative and the positive commandments of the three curses attaching to them, which we shall mention and elucidate below. Our intent is both Lash, both Lashon Har and Rekilut, and both and both what is false and what is true. And this is what we shall refer to in the Be'er Mayim Kaim as in the first four modes, unless we explicitly state that it applies only in one of them, and it shall be and it shall remain then remain necessary for us only to explain in respect to all of the negative or positive commandments, whether they apply in his, the object's presence or not in his presence or to the speaker or to the receiver. And those negative or positive commandments, which include all of the modes, I shall refer to in short in the Ba'er Mayim Kaim, as in, in all the eight modes, that is Lashon Hara and Rekilut, in his presence or not in his presence, both to the speaker and to the receiver, and both if false or if true. Remember these things, for I will not reiterate them in the introduction. First, we shall explain how many negative commandments one transgresses in the speaking of Lashon Hauer and Rekilu, and then how many positive commandments then how many curses he brings upon himself, and further, how many great 
Isherim, prohibitions, result from this. I shall divide this introduction into two parts, the first to be called Makor Kaim, and a super commentary around it called Be'er Ma'im Kaim. The reason for these names I have given in the preface, in the Be'er Ma'im Kaim, it will be made clear to which mode each negative or positive commandment applies, along with some other uh, holocaust. This I begin with the help of him who grants a man knowledge. So, yeah, I, I'm very cautious, you know, as I've told you earlier. Um, but getting back to our, I kind of so digressed. I, I kind of digressed out of necessity there because um, this does bring a more elucidation to the rumination. Yeah. I was just going to say, side note, because of Yosef bringing bad reports, he caused the Egyptian exile for the Jewish people. That's crazy. So what are we doing? There's that. See, that's what I'm saying. I always say it, you know, we're the cause of extending the exile. As much as we cry out for him to come back, what is it we're doing? There's a lot of Lashon Har in the world. There is. So much so that a lot of souls have been tainted by it. And um, this is something that must be guarded with and it requires a lot of energy. 100%. Um, another book I would strongly recommend to get is uh, The Path of the Just by Moshe Kayem Luzado, known as the Ramkal. Masilat Yeshurin. Is this magnum opus? Um, I could easily read uh, the first chapter of that, and <laughs> on top of this. I mean, I, yeah. there's so many places I could go. <laughs> yeah, let's just go back to the rumination. You know, but anyway. We have a lul, you know? A yeah, lul is for I, that. Absolutely. All this stuff bears on a lul. I mean, get your mind. Because also, every morning, we blow the shofar. Every day of a lul. Yes. Wow. As a call to Teshuva. And Shofar rearranges to Sheen, Peru, to be fruitful in the Sheen. And I forget what the Shin was connected to, but Perush. Huh? Perush. Oh, and there's that. But um, the Shofar being broken up to the word uh, for to be fruitful. And then you have the sheen as well. So there was something connected to that. There was a Devar Torah. Rabbi was bringing this down. Oh, epic fail. But anyway, we're supposed to give birth. And the shofar blast is a way to do that. So it's interesting that every single day during a lul, we do that. Wow. 
and then in connection with the word no lead. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, though, let's go there since we know that one. Perush is the root of Pharisee. Perushim. Perushim. So we're blowing the, the Pharisee horn every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Amazing. Okay, so the second paragraph of the rumination. So what is the context of judge not? lest you be judged. The quote is found in Matthew 7, 1 and Luke 6, 37. Both passages go on to use the metaphor of something stuck in the eye to explain Yeshua's otherwise shocking statement that we should not judge. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. As you may well know, this whole passage is about hypocrisy not judging. Of course, we are not only to judge, we are to appoint judges as well. Even as individuals, we should appoint judges over our lives, judges that examine our every thought, word, and deed against the judge of judges, judgments. Now, this is going back to the Talmudic dictum of rabbis who hold an opinion analogous to the speck in the eye. What? Yeah, this goes to my point earlier. This is Talmudic. The speck in the eye is a opinion, opinion of the rabbi? Yeah. A rabbi who won't, bu a, a rabbi who won't budge from his opinion. Look at the look, look at the context. He's talking about the parashim. Look, overlay this with Matthew 23, the first couple of verses. What does he say there? He says, the parashim and the Zedekim sit in the seat of Moshe. Whatsoever they tell you to do, do it. But don't do what they do, for they say and do not. He's not just pointing to their deeds. He's pointing to what they're also saying. Their actions say something different than what they're saying. There's a, speck, than words. there's a speck, a, a moat in their eye. They're all too quick to point out the sin of others but, or what they perceive to be sin. Hmm. Yeshua does the same thing in Yochanan in his confrontation with them. When the Pharisees say, were we born in sin? Was not Abraham our father? Hmm. 
And Yeshua also says, you say you can see, but yet your sin remains. That fits in contextually with this verse right here also. But since you say you see, your sin remains. But if you were blind, your sin would not be there. Oh. Because you can, you can set your own standards and thereby eliminate sin. So you can now be sinless because it doesn't exist to you. The problem, yeah, the problem with that is now, see, um, the, the contextualization of Vayikra in 19.14, and you shall not curse to death. In other words, the person who has not heard this principle of the Torah before, who's unlearned. This also goes to the one teaching them. Mm-hmm. And before the blind, you should not put a stumbling block. You should not cause someone to sin. What's the next verse? And you should not stand idly by with the shedding of the blood, as I was reading from the Hafez Kaim. That's right. See, whose standards are we adhering to? Hashem's or some guy behind the pulpit or some mm. cult leader or whatever it might be. You know, if you're going to sit there and say Joseph Smith, for example, you certainly have a speck in your eye. So how can you remove the speck from mine? Right. How can you get me to see what the Torah is telling me, how I should be living, how I should be walking out the commandments? How can you possibly... Cause me to see when you can't see yourself. Wow. This also speaks to the teacher and why teachers are held to such high standards and why they're right. dealt with more harshly. Not many of you should desire to be teachers. Shaul is making the point be careful because more strict gavura will be exacted upon you if you lead people away from the commandments. Be ever so careful. Because as he says here with this verse that ends it, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Second Corinthians 13, 5. Now go look up the context. <laughs> what I wonder is what word do they use right there? Uh, nasu, Nasa. The same word used in the Akeda. Genesis 22. Yeah, the same word is used in Matthew 3 in the Dalish. Nice. Regarding Yeshua in the wilderness. Wow. Test yourself by offering yourself up 
Yep. Which is interesting because that's why we read the Akeda every morning, right after the morning blessings. Because we're to spur ourselves to that same love and devotion as Abraham and Yitzhak. And it becomes an atonement for us. Yeah, I, we can't just look to their merit, but we have to derive our own. That was the problem with B'nai Yisrael and Mitzrayim and the first fathers. I like that Yeskel points that out. You know, they were spiritually lazy. Wow. Goodness. And we can't be either. That's you know, right. We have we have to acquire our own merit in the performance of mitzvah. Uh, Devarim 6.25, and it will be a merit for you if you are scrupulous to observe all that I have commanded you. Mm. Um, that was a particularly short rumination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, bringing about a lot of filler. Uh, I do have uh, Torah Wellsprings up, though. Um, Why? The, the section on joy on page seven of the PDF. Page seven. So it states in Devarim 3318, uh, Simcha, um, Zebulon, Zebulon, we rejoice when you go out. Rashi translates, uh, Hatzalach, yeah, Hatzalach, uh, Betzateka, uh, Leshakora, yeah. Uh, succeed when you go out to do business. Mm. So the translation of Simcha Joy is Hetzelah, success. Almost like, uh, not quite that's, rearranged, but... That's the Birkan Hamazon. Yeah. Like Similarly, a, uh, actually, in my Sidur, that's part of Havdalah. Grant us success. Um, oh, because the Ana Hoshiana. Um, I remember you leading us with that. That was amazing. <laughs> um, I'm going to go to the Birkat Amazon and the Yom Kippur Makzor. <laughs> That's terrible. Ain't no Birkat in there. <laughs> It's like you probably don't have a Magzor if you have a beer cot in your young board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Hatsi Le Kenu bring us success. And we see that word, and we see that <coughs> Ellie Melek uses refers to that word in a sense here right bring us success bring us success to our ways bring us success to our studies and send blessing profit and success in all that our hands do as is written he will receive a blessing from hashem and just kindness from the god of his salvation for the jews 
there was light, gladness, joy, and honor. And it is written, David was successful in all his ways, and Hashem was with him. So may he be with us. And I love the next one, Bay Noach, and Noach found favor in the eyes of Hashem. And Noach found favor in the eyes of Hashem. And Noach found favor in the eyes of Hashem. So shall we find favor and you find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. God of Meir, answer us. God of Meir, answer us. God of Meir, answer us. And then Baruch Haba, blessed is he who comes in the name of Hashem. What did the master say in his lament over Yerushalayim? You shall Won't not see, see me again until you learn to cry, Baruch Haba, Hashem Adonai. Right here in Havdalah, man. <laughs> Love it. Wow. Fourth blessing of the Birkah Hamazon. We say this is before you even get to the blessing to Mysidor. Wow. Because that's how Sephardi rolls. It says, Lechain or Chesed or Revak Hatzala Ve Hatzlaka Beraka Vishua Nechama Parnasa. They call Kala. What does that translate to? With grace and kindness, with mercy, with relief, salvation, success. Which is interesting because we only see success once. And then we see salvation connected to that. So it uses revach as relief, hadzala as salvation, which we just said is simka according to Rashi. Then it says, Behatz Lacha, which is success. Mm. So your Hadzala and your Hatz Lacha is salvation and success, which is so amazing to think about when we look at success and salvation and joy as you're reading. Uh, we say that in the fourth blessing of the Birkah Hamazon, Keep going. Yeah, I was just you see ve noak matzahen ve ne adonai ve noak matzahen ve ne adonai ve noak matzahen ve ne adonai kending ze hen ve shekel tov ve ne Elohim. Be'adam, uh, Elaha, the Demeir Anenu, Elaha, Demeir Anenu, Elaha, Demeir Anenu. Okay, so in the um, Will Springs. I thought that was a hey for the Hadzalah. I thought it was Hadzalah. Yeah, that's the head. But that's the head. 
Yeah. So it really is Hatzlacha is the success, as in the Birkat. Hatzalah, if it was a hey, it would have been salvation. So just as a clearing that up real quick on my part, the, the Hatzlacha is Hatzlach here in our Torah Wellspring, which is success, which is also connected to Sinka. Okay. Wow. That's crazy, man. Like <laughs> how close that is. The difference between a chet and a hey. Yeah, the translation of Shimka Joy is Hatzalak, success. Similarly, in this week's Parsha, it states in 1616, Beha Ach Shimka, and the Targum Yonatan writes, Barem Hadavon Betso Be. Be happy with your success. Mm. Once again, there is a connection between Simka and Hatzlaka. Uh, Rabbi Yehesko of Kozmir Zedel explains that this is because happiness brings success. So for Parnasa, do your Hitzdalus and be happy. Of course, you should pray too, and Hashem will give you parnasa. Because <laughs> our parnasa, oh. we derive our parnasa from Him because we're meant to do a certain thing in life. Oh. The Rebbe of Alexander of Blessed Memory, uh, may Oron Shel Yisrael B, teaches that the first letters of they. Vahiit Ach Shimka spell um, Shiva false. This hints that one should pretend to be happy even if he isn't, because by pretending to be happy, you will become happy and you will attain genuine joy. Shiva falsehood is alluded to in the Roshe Tevos at the beginning of the words because it is only false at the beginning. Later, it turns into genuine joy. The Beit Aharon of blessed memory taught that it is generally forbidden to pretend to be on a particular uh, madrega when one isn't there yet. The only exception is joy because false joy results in true happiness. The Beit Aharon, Sukkos, page 102, says a person must work to attain joy more than all other midos. In Olam Haba, there are no disputes, only happiness. But when one is happy, it is as though he is living in Olam Haba, even while living in this world, as Kazal say, uh, Olamach Habra'ah. You shall see the future world in your lifetime. You should experience the bliss and joy of Alam Haba while still living in this world. The Gemara in Ta'anit 22 relates that Rav Broka asked Eliyahu Hanavi whether 
there was anyone in the marketplace who is a Ben Olam Haba. Eliyahu showed him two happy people. They are Ben Olam Haba, Eliyahu told him. Uh, the Gaon Yaakov, printed in Ein Yaakov, asked, why did Rav Broca want to know who is Ben Olam Haba? Were they remind were they reminder that everything is from Hashem? The Baal HaMaor Shabbos quoted in uh, Sokan Aruch Orach Kain 257.8 says our rabbis instituted that one must eat and enjoy hot food on Shabbos. Whoever doesn't eat hot dishes on Shabbos, we must check him out because perhaps he is a non-believer. Because why doesn't he believe in Kozal that it is permitted to eat hot foods on Shabbos? Rabbi Hirschle of least of blessed memory, uh, or or Hayashar Hatov Behatov. Page 129 explains on Shabbos, we attain emunah that everything comes from Hashem and not through the work of our hands. How foods we eat on Shabbos symbolize this principle. We begin cooking on Erev Shabbos and then we don't touch it until we eat it on Shabbos. It finishes cooking on its own. This reminds us that it is the same with all our Ishtalus. We begin the process, but we don't finish it. The result is in Hashem's hands. If one doesn't eat hot foods on Shabbos, it seems that he doesn't have this belief. He thinks that he does the beginning and the end, and everything is in his hands. Therefore, we are told to check him out to see whether he believes in Hashem. Okay, I'm just seeing my place here. Okay. I was reading from Joy and it got a little mixed up. The Gaon Yaakov printed in In Yaakov asked, why did Rav Broca want to know who is a Ben Olam Haba? Were they considering marrying his sister or his daughter? Eliyahu's answer is even more difficult because how can one attest on a living person that he is a Ben Olam Haba? Who knows what the future will bring? The Gaon Yaakov answers that Rav Broca was inquiring about who lives in this world as though he is in Olam Haba because he wanted to emulate them. So Eliyahu showed him the two happy people who know how to live in this world with the joy experienced in Olam Haba.
joy in this world is never perfect. For example, good food makes people happy, but it comes along with illness that food can cause and the distress of lacking the money needed to purchase food. Food can also cause jealousy and enemies, etc. Similarly, every physical joy is limited and has a negative side to it. But these two people were happy, independent of any physical pleasure or achievement. They were happy because that is how they chose to be. And that perfect joy is a sense of the pleasure of Olam Haba. And then Hashem's children. We have a lot to be happy about as this week's Parsha and 41 proclaims Bani uh, Motam La La Adonai Elokeikem. You are children of Hashem, your God. Think about that for a moment. It is the greatest happiness in the world. Hashem's love to us uh, surpasses the love of a parent has for his children, as it states in Avot 3. The Mishnah is saying that Hashem loves the Jewish nation and he calls us his children. Hashem's love to his nation is even greater than that because he told them, Banim Otam La Adonai Elokeikem, that they are Hashem's children and there is a rule, Miketzet Shebiku Befanav. You only tell someone part of his praise. So, as we were told that Hashem loves us like children, we understand that Hashem's love for us is even greater, that we are his children. His soul of Soli Meketzet Shebiku, part of our praise. Perhaps you will say that you sinned and you lost the status of Benin, but it isn't so, as it states, Benin Otam, and Rabbi Bunim of uh, Pashika, a blessed memory, explains that Otam means that we are Hashem's children, even if we sin. For the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah 25 says, Otam Efilu, uh, uh, Shugin Atam Efilu, Mezidin Otam Efilu, Muti'in, that the word Otam implies that even if you sin by accident, intentionally, or when you make mistakes, you remain Banim Otam, Hashem's children. There is a Maklokit in the Gemara in Kiddushin 36 whether we are called Hashem's children even when we sin. According to Reb Yehuda, we are only Hashem's children when we act righteously. Reb Meir says, Bain Kach, U Bain Kach, Kareen Banim, regardless of whether we perform mitzvot or Kalila, Kalila Averos, we are always Banim, Hashem's beloved children. The Rashba and uh, Teshuvah 194 writes that although we generally accept Reb Yehuda's view over Reb Meir, Meir's, in this instance, the Halakha is according to Reb Meir. At all times, regardless of our behavior, we are Hashem's children.
it states, you are Hashem's children, don't afflict yourself, don't afflict yourselves with wounds, and don't pull the hair from your head when someone dies. Since we are Hashem's children, it isn't proper to inflict ourselves or pull out hair when a tragedy occurs. The Ibn Ezra explains, now that you know you are Hashem's children and he loves you more than a father loves his son, do not injure yourself when something distressful occurs because everything is for the good. It can be compared to a child who doesn't understand the ways of his parent, but he relies on his parents. That's how you should be with your emunah in Hashem. The Soprano writes, it is improper to show extreme grief for a relative who died if there remained a closer relative who was more capable of caring for you. So too, you are Hashem's children and he is your eternal father. Therefore, it is improper to worry and to mourn extensively for the dead. The Or HaKayim HaKadosh, Rishon Letzion, writes on the Pasuk in Yirmiyahu 31.19, Haben Yakir Li uh, Ephrim, that when someone has a foul odor, people keep their distance from him. However, when your baby needs a diaper change, the parents have no problem holding the child and playing with him. They hug and kiss him, almost as if they don't sense the bad odor because of their love for the child. We are Hashem's children, and Hashem says that even if we smell foully from our sins, we remain Hashem's beloved children. Hashem plays with us and enjoys us as a parent plays with his child, even when the child has a foul odor. In any situation, Hashem says, that he loves us and he will always have mercy on us. Happy with your portion. Rabbi Shlomo Karliner of Blessed Memory said, the reason uh, younger leads in our times don't succeed in Avodah Hashem is because they don't recognize their successes. They perform mitzvahs and good deeds, but they don't appreciate what they are doing. They think their deeds are mediocre deeds and nothing special. They don't realize that their mitzvahs are precious in Hashem's eyes and that Hashem loves them for performing these good, good deeds. Had they appreciated that, they would devote themselves so much more to Hashem's service. As it states in Avos 4.1, Who is wealthy? Someone who is happy with his portion. Zedekim and the Safasi met Ibed uh, Tiparet Shlomo uh, Kitavo and uh, Menukav Ve Kedushah Sha'ar HaTorah, Volume 2, page 23, in the name of the Vilna Gaon of Blessed Memory, explained that this also applies to uh, Rukniot. One must be happy with his portion. As Rabbi Mendel of Vitebesk, a blessed memory writes, letter 22, a response to my friends regarding learning Torah and Avodah Hashem. Many are complaining that they have impure thoughts. The reason for that is because they aren't happy with their service. This is a great rule. One must be happy with his portion. One must be happy with his portion in Torah and Avodah Hashem, regardless of whether his portion is large or small. He should be delighted with the service he performs. 
Of course, one must say, when will I serve Hashem like the Avos? Nevertheless, you should be very happy with the accomplishments you've achieved until now. The Vilna Gaon, a blessed memory, Orot Hagras in Ka 6 writes, Atvus, being sad is a, a moon, a blemish. It states, whoever has a moon can't come to the Mikdash. Therefore, <clears throat> when one comes to the Mikdash, he must be happy. This also applies to all aspects of Avodah Hashem. They need to be performed joyously. This also applies to Elul. We must approach this holy month with joy. As the Kazam Sofer, a blessed memory says, it is a great avera for a Baal Teshuvah to be sad. Parsha's Re'eh is an introduction to Elul, as Zedekim say, is Rosheh. Tevos. Today is the beginning of Elul. The parasha repeats the theme of being happy several times, which is the disposition we should have this month. Ga'ava, arrogance. Rabbi Michael of Zlokev, a blessed memory, taught that uh, Ga'ava separates a person from Hashem, as it states in Devarim 5.5, the sensation of Anoki of pride separates a person from Hashem. The Maor Ve Shamesh quotes this fort and adds that there is a time for Ga'ava too. As the Maor Ve Shamesh writes, nevertheless, there is a time for everything because when a person is about to pour his heart out before Hashem in prayer and then he thinks, but who am I to pray before HaKadosh Baruch Hu? And he is embarrassed to being properly with his Hishlavavus and to reconnect with Hashem. At these times, he should tell himself that he is worthy to come before the king. If he is humble, he won't be able to Davin. Therefore, now is the time to utilize the attribute of Ga'ava, the Kedushah, holy pride. Rebbe Elimelech of Lishenks, a blessed memory, was extremely humble. He considered himself the worst person in the world. He said, I wish my mother gave birth to a stone and not me because a stone doesn't rebel against Hashem, and I do. He humbly felt that he never served Hashem properly. Once he reviewed his deeds and felt so broken by what he found that he feared he would become ill from depression. There was a bottle of wine on the table, he said. Rabono Shalom, I never served you yet, but now I will serve you for the first time. He took a cup of wine and said the bracha with a lot of kavana and meshirush. Nefesh, he felt he did at least one good deed. And the bracha that he said properly, that comforted him. Despite his great humility, when people came to him asking him to daveen for them, he would tell himself, I can help this person with my tefillos, and no one else can. When he understood that his humility would prevent him from serving Hashem, he followed the path of Ga'ava, the Kiddushah, holy pride. The Ma'or Shemesh says that this is implied in the pasuk, the attribute of Anuki, 
of Ga'ava can be a blessing and it can be a curse. It all depends on how and when it is used. The Baal HaTanya, a blessed memory, once knocked at the door of his Rebbe, the Magid of Mezrich, a blessed memory, the Magid asked, who's there? The Baal HaTanya replied, it is I, the Magid of the Magid asked again, who's at the door? And the Baal HaTanya replied, it is I. The Magid instructed the Baal HaTanya to go to a certain Brit, Mila. The following day, the Baal HaTanya went there and he sat down at a table. Something was stolen at, his, at the Brit Mila. As they didn't recognize the Baal HaTanya, they suspected that perhaps he was the thief, uh, Kalila. They checked through his pockets to find the stolen item. And throughout this humiliating experience, the Baal HaTanya kept repeating, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. When he returned to the Magid, the Magid told him, for each time that you said, it is I, you had to repeat, it wasn't me. Because we must know that everything is from Hashem and ultimately it isn't me. Yet, as we see, there are times for holy pride as well. There are times when one should gird himself with holy pride and say that he is special. He can serve Hashem. He can accomplish great things with his Torah, Tefillah, and Avodah Hashem. As it states in Perky Avot 6.1, whoever studies Torah, he becomes dressed in Anava, humility. The Maor Ein Naim explains that a garment can be put on or taken off. He becomes dressed in Anava. But he can also take off the clothes of Anava and act with holy pride when needed, because there are times when one must use the attribute of Ga'ava too to believe in his abilities. It states in Bereshit 4, 7-14, the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh explains, if you do good deeds, this might lead you to uh, She'at Ga'ava. However, if you will focus on how much your Avodah Hashem is lacking and how little you accomplished in your lifetime, that can result in despair. And you might lose hope of ever succeeding in Avodah Hashem. So what should a person do? The answer is to waver back and forth between the attributes of humility and holy pride depending upon your need at the time. <clears throat> sometimes think about your humility and sometimes discard humility and focus on your greatness. <clears throat> I thought it was interesting. It said, be clothed in humility because who's the most humble? That Hashem testified. The most humble among men was Moshe. Okay. Yeah. And then you have the Mashiach obviously being one of great humility and the idea of studying Torah or the understanding of studying Torah, you're clothed in that. So the concept of being clothed in Mashiach is there's that verse right there. Take off the old, put on the new. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of takes me to our vote is there 20 B. Um, oh, here we go. 
And this is at odds with the statement by of Rav Yehoshua ben Levi. For uh, Rav Yehoshua ben Levi said, humility is the greatest of them all. For it is stated, the spirit of Hashem, the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring tidings of redemption to the humble ones. The pious ones is not stated, but the humble ones. You have thus learned that humility is the greatest of them all, i.e. of all the attributes enumerated by Rav Pincus ben Yair. Isn't that the same section that leads, that talks about uh, piety leads to... Yeah. Uh, and it goes all the way up to like resurrection of the dead. Yep. The rabbis taught in a Baresa. The verse states, and you shall beware of any evil thing. This teaches that a person should not think immoral thoughts by day and come thereby to Tuma by night. The Baresa continues, from here, Rav Pincus ben Yair said, the study of Torah brings one to needfulness. Needfulness brings one to diligence. Diligence brings one to moral cleanliness. Cleanliness brings one to asceticism. Asceticism brings one to purity. Purity brings one to piety. Piety brings one to humility. Humility, humility brings one to fear of sin. Fear of sin brings one to holiness. Holiness brings one to divine inspiration. Divine inspiration brings one to resurrection of the dead. The Baresa continues, and piety is the greatest of them all, for it is stated, then you, God, spoke in a vision to your pious ones since... God chooses to speak to those accomplished in piety. It is obviously they who are the greatest of his adherents. And then we have the statement by Rabbi Yehuda Ben Levi regarding uh, humility. So that's but a now, what, yeah, what having chapter? read this from uh, Torah Wellsprings, we realize that the various modes that a person can act in, because he described, describes uh, uh, Gavana, uh, pride. Oh, that you can have it be a good thing. Yeah, where if it's for the sake of heaven and you're a Bodhisattva Hashem. But humility can still be there to ensure that you don't raise yourself up and make yourself think that you are better than the, than anyone else. Yeah. Because this basically levels the playing field for everybody. Wow. No one is the better of the other. feel like the uh, the parable of the wages <laughs> those who've been working all day and 
and then they come in at the end of the day, make the same wages as those who've been working all day. Exactly. Am I not free to do as I will with my field? Is your eye evil because I am good? Mm. Did you not agree with me for one dinar? Yeah. Is so, there a Tehillim associated with uh, the pious ones that you read at the end of a Vodazera? Uh, the Dafi you read there. Tehillim 89.20. The verse speaks of the anointment of David as king. It states that God spoke of this to his pious ones. It does not say that he spoke of it to his humble ones or to those who fear sin. Evidently, piety is the greatest of all liberation's attributes, i.e. of those attributes that can be attained through one's own efforts. Uh, see, note 34, which I think I want to go there. The uh, Kehot Tehillim uh, quotes this Abodah Zerah 20b as the commentary for oh, Tehillim. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Let's see, drop back to note 34. The attribute of holiness is granted only to one who has attained all the other attributes enumerated in the Baresa. In particular, one must have achieved perfection in the area of asceticism and piety. One who eschews physical pleasure in all its forms as in asceticism and cleaves as closely as humanly possible to God as in piety will be blessed with holiness. The difference between holiness and the earlier attributes is as follows. One laboring to achieve asceticism and piety is limited by his very humanity. He must eat, drink, sleep, and perform myriad other mundane tasks essential to the physical existence. He does not welcome these tasks. They hinder his efforts to escape the physical and cleave to God, but he accepts them as inevitable. One granted holiness by a contrast is on so exalted a level that his physicality poses no barrier whatsoever to a constant attainment attachment to the divine. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word would be devikud. To the contrary, he transforms the physical acts into acts of holiness. See, uh, this was going to a point I made earlier uh, in the in the episode um, where. <clears throat> we need to avoid um, discussions that are not for the sake of heaven, even during the week, as is now during this podcast. Mm -hmm. Essentially, mm -hmm. it could render you to me. You would not be able to approach Hashem. Which makes Shabbat a little interesting. <laughs> um. As um, Abraham Heschel writes in his book, The, the Shabbat, uh, Shabbat's not for the sake of the weekdays. The weekdays are for the sake of Shabbat. 
Okay. <laughs> Which is now reading this note 34 here is that when he, you know, when it says, um, one granted holiness by contrast is on the exalted level that his physicality poses no barrier whatsoever to a constant attachment to the divine. To the contrary, he transforms physical acts of holiness in his hands. The mundane is a conduit to the divine. There's, there's another reason why the table in the home is viewed as an altar. Literally, it goes. You back are to taking the something mundane and you are attaching holiness to it. You are sanctifying it. Mm -hmm. Levels of holiness. You know, uh, this can be realized in the study of the Mishkan because there are levels of holiness when you approach Hashem. But the closer you get, the greater the scrutiny you come under by the Shekinah. Right. So, an inspiration for each level you uh, attain, the level of scrutiny only increases, which means you really are challenged to really improve. Yeah. Hence, <laughs> you know, we have a little. Here we go. Yeah, you know. All this is appropriate for a little. I mean, we're knocking on the door once again. Um, yeah, when he eats, it is a sacrificial offering. Mm. When he drinks, it is a libation poured upon the altar. I like that. Good night. <laughs> One cannot achieve such levels of holiness through one's own efforts. Look at that. And they say that they're being self-righteous. So we're not working for our salvation. One can only prepare the ground by perfecting himself in the aforementioned attributes. If one merits it, God will crown him with holiness. Holiness differs in this way from the Baresa's earlier attributes. They are goals toward which a person must strive and which he can attain through his own efforts. Holiness is, oh boy, holiness is the reward one receives for bringing himself to this degree of perfection. Mashila Yesharim, chapter 26. Hmm. See Yisrael Kedoshim, pages 6 and 7. See Gra Imre uh, Noam to uh, Barakot 6b, second forward to uh, Takaras HaKadosh. Uh, Kodesh. <clears throat> when so I read the, the, the first, uh, oh sorry, the temple, the temple musicians. There were two in particular. One is called Haman, not to be confused with Hamon, uh, and Aton. Like Aton Katz. Oh. So I always wonder where did the name Aton Katz come from? Because that he's a beautiful musician. And it's just like, well, that was actually one of the name of the temple 
musicians. But what's interesting is this commentary on Tehillim 89 verse 20 calls these temple musicians prophets and also Torah scholars. Oh. So the musicians are known as prophets and Torah scholars. Wow. That, that, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Well, sages just, say also say here that one who studies Torah is like a Kohen. Wow. So yeah, I was just I was just thinking about the people on the platform, like to know that any one of them could get down and like do a drosh. <laughs> like, oh, I thought you only played the Kinor. It's like <laughs> I know a little Gamara and some Gamatria. Oh <laughs> uh. I have a friend I joke I joke with him at work. His name is uh, Yeshiyahu, of course, prophetic name, right? <laughs> and we're reading Yeshiyahu all during these seven weeks. Oh. Um, I always tell him, I'm like, dude, you, I don't know, man, you probably are a Levite. Like, I don't have any clout, you know, but <laughs> he's a musician. And every single time I talk Torah with him, he like, he connects these dots and like brings these beautiful insights to like, you know, the master's words and things like that. And so I always joke with him. I'm like, dude, you know, the <laughs> Levites, they play music and then they get down and they do a drosh. Like oh, that's their thing. That is <laughs> and here, so nice. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, here it is in the commentary of Tim It's like, yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> I'm going to take a picture and send this to him. Oh. But yeah, anyway, I just love finding little things like that. Is it... Uh... Well, where do you want to go? Um... Well, he has a sec, uh, section on Elul. Um, maybe I'll read that, and we, I think we could probably wrap it there. All right, cool. Um, More Elul coming up, so we yeah. don't have to get it all tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Last week's Parsha begins with the words, Behaya uh, Akev. Tishma'on, because I'll say that the word Vehaya uh, expresses happiness. When is there true happiness? Akev, when we reach the heel, the end of the year, because Tishma'on, that is the time of year that we listen to the Torah and change our ways. Wow. Change our ways, huh? Yeah, again, more, more Ekev there on the heels. Well, Zedekim would say, even fish in the sea tremble on Shabos Mevarkim Alul. That's the Shabbat. I know. <laughs> I'm going to have to do a, a screen cap of that get it out mm -hmm. there 
Mm-hmm. That's really good. That's wow. Yeah, I got to share that issue. That's. <laughs> I like that one about Hashem's children. Yeah. Side note, I shared that with a Christian friend of mine and they were freaked out because they were like, but but what about Christians? Does it say anything about Christians being called children of God? And I was like, <laughs> uh, um, well, I mean, let's talk about this. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Long story short, you have to walk in the ways of the Torah in order to be called a child of God. Yeah. So we talked, we had that conversation. <laughs> See, Rabbi Yisakar Dova of Bell's of Blessed Memory used to cover himself with blankets from the 15th of Av. He explained, it says in Sepharim that even fish tremble at this time of year. Fish don't know what Elul is all about. Those who learn Sepharim and understand what Elul about certainly should be afraid. <laughs> it is repeated that every year in Yerushalayim when the Kazan were in Bench Hodesh Elul, some women in the Ezra's Nashim fainted from fright. People would shout, water! Bring water. In the court of Rebbe David Bitterman, of blessed memory, the atmosphere on Arab Shabbos, Mevar Kimalul, resembled that of Arab Yom Kippur as the Gabaim would go around asking each other for uh, Mekilah. Yeah, yeah. Forgive years, me. Yeah, years ago, the Musaf that follows the Rosh Hodesh benching for Elul was said, with a lot of kavana because people were inspired to improve their ways. A holy suffering bemoaned the loss of inspiration and fear that prevails nowadays. Nevertheless, to whatever extent we can, we should make this month special. Each moment of Elul is precious. Amen. Yeah, and I think that's a good one to conclude on. Closing up the books. Boy, what a journey. And we are just getting started. (laughs) I don't know about you. I just, after listening to uh, Rabbi Trugman a lot this week, I mean, he really has just unleashed a plethora of podcasts which I actually asked him a couple of months ago if he could start doing because I only um, had his articles in his book. Uh-huh. And uh, I was like, do you ever think about doing podcasts? And he's like, hmm, never thought about it. Let me look at it. And he has hours, bro, of just gems. And I'm like, this is awesome. But the whole thing of understanding to give birth to ourselves. And as we just read about changing your ways and uh, appointing judges, you know, like I feel that in my spirit for sure. 
like not to sound all holy roller with it, but like <laughs> I, I feel the that energy there of like, yeah, I want a new me. You know, I want I want to do things differently. I want to me personally. I want to see the third temple. I want to see Mashiach. You know, and I want my household to be that level you know and um my my co-workers and my family you know like everybody you know just actualizing that spark yeah so anyway i've just been i just been kind of in that headspace and just working on music is just taking that over the top but so yes yeah, uh, huh? yeah yeah i'll send you yeah. Yeah. I'll send you the links because he's got like he's even on Instagram. It's gotten that real. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm like, I'm not even on Instagram that much. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> I'm not really even on Facebook that much anymore. Yeah, I'm uh, out. You know, I I mean I posted a pickup from, from the Rambon that I was studying. Yeah. You know, but you know, other than that, I really, I really don't. Yeah. Well, I will. Well, actually, you go first on the closing, Brock, and then I yep. follow. Amen. <laughs> okay, the prayer after study. I thank you, O Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall. And you have not established my portion with idlers, for I rise early and they arise early. I rise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. I toil and they toil. I toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come. And they run to the pit of destruction, as it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction, men of bloodshed, and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Baruch Atan Adonai Eloheinu Menachaolam Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet Vechaye Olam Natan Betokhenu Baruch Atan Adonai Noten Ha Torah. Amen.